Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're currently walking verse by verse through the book of 1 John. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. People that study such things tell us that today we are living in what is called the information age. You heard that term before, the information age. It's a term that was first used in the 1960s. And I can promise you that when that sociologist or historian in the 1960s said we are entering the information age, he or she had no idea exactly where we were headed. The term the information age describes a period of history where access to and the control of information is the defining characteristic of this current era of human civilization. We are obsessed with information. The currency of the day is information. And as I was researching and reading about this information age this week, I came across two statistics that absolutely blew my mind. Here's the first one. It is estimated that the world's capacity to store information has reached five zettabytes. Now, I don't know about you, but I had no idea what a zettabyte was. So I looked that up, and here's what it means. Uh, Five zettabytes is the equivalent of 4,500 stacks of books from earth to the sun. So we have the ability today to store 4,500 books stacks of books from the earth all the way to the sun. That's how much information we can hold currently. And then this statistic by the CEO of Google blew my doors off. And it's a good thing we have all that storage capacity because every two days we create as much information now as we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. I don't even have a box to put that in. (laughs) And I read and I thought, "Ah." but then I thought, man, even if he's half wrong, (laughs) every two days. Now, Now, here's the reality. Much of the information that we are generating is absolutely useless, right? If you don't believe me, just spend a little time on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you will find out that a lot of the information, let me give you a couple of examples. This, this week, I went with our worship team, and we led a conference up in the Smoky Mountains for about seven or 800 worship leaders from about three or 400 different churches, and we were speaking, and our worship team was leading there all week, and, and I posted something on my Instagram account this week. I want to put it up here on the screen. Let me see where we're going to have it, right here. So put it up on the big one so they can see it good. It's of a hotel there in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And look what they're advertising. Phones in the room. 
I got one in my pocket. Seriously, it's 2017 and we're still advertising phone. No wonder the vacancy light was hot, right? It was. But again, I posted that on my Instagram account, but that's that's not really changing the world kind of information. It's new information, but it's useless. I'll give you another. Pastor Teddy Johnson. Teddy is on, on Instagram. Now, Teddy only posts a picture about every six months. But on Instagram, Teddy Johnson ate his first Chick-fil-A biscuit in Las Vegas. And he felt like the whole world needed to know about it. So the point I'm making is there's a lot of this information that is absolutely silly and useless. Amen? But much of this information claims to be spiritual truth. Whether it's via podcast, blog post, sermon video, iBook, Or simply an online conversation. Like never before, we are inundated with an enormous amount of information claiming to be spiritual truth. And I want us to remember something this morning as we think about that. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, and I want you to listen to what he said. Put on... The full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the, what's the next word? Schemes. That's an important word. In the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, this is the Greek word methodia. We get the English word method from it. It describes a systematic way of doing something. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the systematic attempts, the systematic strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's what Paul says. We have an enemy who is strategically developing plans to try to mislead and deceive. And one of the ways he does this is by portraying something to be spiritual truth, which is really not. As a matter of fact, Paul went on in another section of Scripture. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. A lot of information out there claiming to be spiritual truth. Preachers, talk show hosts on the internet, on television, claiming to to contain the truth and to give us the truth. Well, how do we know who or what to believe? If you're visiting with us this morning as a church family, we are studying straight through a letter in the New Testament called 1 John. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open them with me to the book of 1 John, and we're going to begin in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, John is addressing that very idea of how do you discern in the midst of all of these voices what is spiritual 
truth. Because even in the early church, we live in the information age today, but, but even in the early church in the first century, there were already those that were creeping into the church and teaching things that they were claiming to be truth from God, but it was actually a false gospel. That's why John, a little earlier in this letter, in 1 John chapter 2, wrote these words. He said, these things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. One of the major reasons John gave us this letter of 1 John is to help us recognize the difference between the truth and false teaching that was trying to creep into the church. And we pick it up in chapter 4 and John inserts a paragraph. You say, why do you say inserts? Because if you remember the last section of chapter 3 and where we're going to pick up next weekend when we come back in chapter 4 verse 7 is a whole section of scripture about the love of God. He talks about how God loves us. He talks about how we're to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And next weekend we're even going to get to that section of scripture where it says, and God is love. All of this about the love of God and loving one another. But right in the middle of that, John inserts the paragraph that we're about to read, and I think we should make note of that. Some people would try to say, if we are clear on what we believe and stand firm in our convictions without wavering, that we're not being loving. And I think John would just say, no, there's a lot to say about the love of God. But at the same time, with a clear, resounding voice, we need to be discerning about the truth. So 1 John chapter 4, pick it up in verse 1. Here's what he said. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. He'd just been saying, love one another, love one. Do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. John opens this paragraph by saying, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you hear. Look what he says. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now It is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. It's a phrase we quote a lot in churches, right? But here it is in the context of being discerning about truth. Verse 5, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. 
He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of of truth and the spirit of error. Some strong language that John uses here and he opens it up with two very clear imperatives, two command statements. First of all, he says, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear. That word believe is a word that means to consider something to be true and worthy of trust. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, don't be naive. Don't be naive and just take everything that is being said to you. Just because they use Christian terms doesn't mean it's Christian truth. I'm going to say that again. Just because someone uses Christian terms doesn't mean it's Christian truth. John says don't believe. And he's not saying this casually. He's saying it by way of imperative, meaning he's not offering a suggestion for us to consider. As an apostle, he's giving us a command that we're to be discerning. And then look at the next one. He says don't believe every spirit, but test the spirit. The word test is also an imperative. And it means to look critically at something, to put something to rigorous examination to discover its genuineness. This word test is the same word that was used in this period in human history by metallurgists who were trying to discover and examine the purity and value of a metal. When a metal was brought into them, they had a series of tests that they would run on it to determine whether or not it was pure and valuable. John says, by way of imperative, and both believe and test are continuous action verbs. Here's what that means. That as Christians, we should always, not just on occasion, we should always be discerning about what we're taking in as spiritual truth. And I like that he said it to the beloved, meaning this. This is not just for your pastors or small group leaders to do. It isn't just that the shepherds of the body are to try. That's one of our responsibilities is to guard the flock from impure and false doctrine. But here John is giving that charge to every one of us as believers. So here's the point. Be very careful about those you place yourself under for spiritual instruction well they're on the Christian TV station well they're on Christian radio everything that uses Christian terminology is not Christian truth you and I are to be discerning about what we place ourselves under and listen I'm not just saying that about what you listen to out there I'm saying that about what you listen to in here Listen, I hope every week you hold us to the test of the Word of God. And the moment we're not faithful to the Word of God, you need to find somewhere else to go to church. Paul says we should always... I love the way Danny Aiken wrote about this. Look look what he said in his commentary. He said, John wants them to be aware of the fact that not every spiritual teacher is a credible teacher. There are spiritual liars... And deceivers out there, and they work hard to earn our trust, 
our allegiance. So let me unpack this for you with two big statements, and then we'll kind of do some unpacking of this first one in great detail. But Paul really tells us in these verses that we need to do two things as we approach this idea of discernment. Number one, we must test the spirits around us. John encourages us to test them. Look what he says again in verses 2 and 3. He said, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John, in that little phrase, gives us two ways that we should test those that we're placing ourselves under to receive spiritual truth. The first test is what I'm calling the lip test. And that answers the question, what are they saying about Jesus? So the first test is a lip test. What are they saying is the truth about Jesus? Well, John tells us here, he said, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, it seems like a simple enough phrase, but you need to understand it is loaded with theological significance. It tells us basically a couple of things. Number one, it tells us who Jesus is. Did you hear it? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Here's the first thing it tells us about who Jesus is. It tells us that Jesus is eternally God. Jesus Christ has come. That little phrase, has come, in the Greek language, which the Bible was originally written in, the New Testament at least, is a phrase that describes movement from one place to another place. The Bible here, John says, Jesus has come in the flesh. He's talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's an interesting term that he uses. He has come into the world, which implies the question, where did he come from? This word implies movement from one place to another place. So if he came here, where did he come from? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. The answer is that Jesus came from eternity as the eternal God who created everything that we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. He existed outside of the parameters of time. And at a point in time, Jesus Christ took on humanity and he entered this time that he created. Jesus is eternally God. Those who are speaking the truth talk about the reality that Jesus is God. John, who wrote this letter that we're reading, also wrote one of the four major gospels. He wrote the gospel according to John. In John chapter 1, John is so overwhelmed with this idea that Jesus stepped out of eternity into time. John opens his gospel with this verse, John 1, 1. Look at it on the screen. In the beginning was the what? The word. It's a, it's a phrase, a term that he was using to describe the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. That means when the beginning began, wherever you place it, based on what you believe about science and creation and research, when the beginning began, John says Jesus already was. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It speaks to an equality with the Father. And then he says, and the Word was God. It talks about his very identity as God. Here's what this means. Before the first second expired off of time's clock, before the first ray of sunlight ever broke across the horizon, before the first bird ever sang from a treetop, when there was no earth, no galaxy, no sun, no ocean, no human race, no nothing, there was Jesus. He is God. I love the way John MacArthur said it. Jesus Christ was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. Thus, he is not a created being, but existed from all eternity. The word did not begin to be, but at that point at which all else began to be, he already was. In the beginning, place it where you may, the word already existed. In other words, the word is before time eternal. Jesus is not simply a good teacher. He's not even a man who became God. He's not just a prophet. Jesus is 100% God. In the pluralistic society that we live in today, it is becoming increasingly politically correct to say that all monotheistic religions worship the same God. But the fact of the matter is, they do not. There is one true God, and his name is Jesus. It's Jesus. Any religion or any teacher that does not ascribe deity to the Lord Jesus Christ, is a false religion or a false teacher. Jesus is not just my buddy. Jesus is not just a genie in the bottle to give me what I want when I want it. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not even the old man upstairs. He is the eternal, sovereign God of the universe. Jesus is God. As you listen to those that speak, If you do not hear from them a regular and consistent affirming of the deity of Jesus Christ, be very careful placing yourself under their spiritual leadership. But he is not only eternally God. He is completely man. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Here's what that means. God, who has no beginning and no ending. God, who spoke everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. He spoke it all into existence with a word from his mouth, without any effort at all. God became a man. God 
took on humanity and clothed himself as a man. John went on. Go back to John's gospel. John chapter 1 verse 1. He said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Then you skip down to verse 14 and he says, and the word became what? Flesh. And then look what he said. And say it out loud dwelt among it. This word dwelt among it, this phrase is a phrase that in their language of the day, it literally meant to pitch your tent. God, from the beginning, God clothed himself in humanity and he just pitched his tent right among us. And look what John said. And we saw. For three and a half years, they went everywhere he went. They watched everything that he did. They heard every word that he spoke. They watched him die and defeat death, hell, and the grave and rise again. John says, and we saw it. What would you see, John? Glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full Of grace and truth. You ever had anybody ask you the question? What do you think God is like? There's an easy answer. Jesus. Jesus is all that God is. With skin on. 100% God. So much God, it was as if he were not man at all. 100% man. He was so much man, it was as if he were not God at all. He was God man in the flesh. MacArthur went on to say it this way. God took on humanity. The infinite became finite. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. When John says, hey, let's be discerning about who we're listening to, he starts with this idea of who Jesus is. If who we're listening to is not teaching us with consistency the truth, that's important. This idea of confesses. He says, if they're confessing that Jesus Christ has come, it's an ongoing, continuous idea. Doesn't mean that they said it one time back there in the past, but it's a spiritual teacher, a spiritual leader that is constantly taking us back to the fact that Jesus is God and that Jesus came as man. John says, if that's not what you're hearing, you should not believe them. But it doesn't just tell us about who Jesus is. That phrase tells us about what Jesus did. Jesus Christ has come. In one sense, that phrase describes a historical reality in the past. It is, in one sense, a past tense statement. Jesus Christ 
has come. What's it referring to? The incarnation of Jesus. He came into the world. God took on humanity. But in another sense, this, this tense that's used here is one of the most powerful tenses in the Greek language. It's called the perfect tense. You say, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. The perfect tense describes action that has been completed in the past, but it has continuing, ongoing effect into eternity. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is a historical reality that we look back on. It happened, but it is a, it is a historical reality that has eternal implications that carry out into all of our lives for all eternity. And it describes what he did because when he came in the flesh, what did he do? Well, if I was going to take just one verse to try to summarize it for you, I'd put 2 Corinthians 5, 21 up here on the screen. Look what it says. He, talking about God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin to, what does it say? Say it out loud. To be sin on our behalf. So that, amen, we might become the what? Righteousness of God. How? In him. Why did Jesus come? Let me tell you why I came. Because all of us had sinned against God. And because of our sin, all of us, doesn't matter what culture or country you come from, because of our sin, all of us are separated from a relationship with God. And it doesn't matter how many good deeds or good works we perform. There's nothing we can do to change the fact that we've sinned against a holy God and we deserve an eternity separated from God. But God loved us so much that he sent his son. Jesus came into this world. God took on humanity. He lived a sinless life. He did what you and I could not do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And then he took that perfect sinless body and he offered that body on a cross as a substitute for you and for me. He died on the cross. The Bible says he made him to be sin. God the Father poured out all of the wrath against sin. Your sin and my sin and the sins of every person who's ever lived. He poured it all out on the person of Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died for us. But he did not stay dead. God raised him from the dead as a testimony that he had accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And now by faith, you and I can turn from our sins and we can surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are born again. The Bible says he made him to be sin so that what? We might become, what did it say? The righteousness of God in him. Did you hear that? The righteousness of who? Yeah, I want you to catch that because here's what we think he said, the righteousness of man. We say that God forgave our sins in Christ and now he treats us just like we've never sinned, but that'd be Adam's best righteousness before the fall. 
That's not, he didn't give us Adam's righteousness before the fall. The Bible says that we've been declared now as righteous as God himself. Because I deserve that? No. Because I earned that? No. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Any teacher that is not consistently teaching you that Jesus is God who came as a man and is our only hope of salvation is not a teacher of the truth. So the lip test, what are they saying about Jesus? Another way to say this is, are the people that you're listening to gospel-centered teachers? A lot of these guys on TV and radio that, yeah, they teach the gospel like this little thing you do when you start, but then the rest of it's all about you and what you can get and you becoming healthy and wealthy. Listen, if it's not rooted and grounded and sent, listen, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the whole alphabet. It's everything. Second test, the life test. Do their lives provide an example of following Jesus? They may be saying all the right things, but is there a life that's been changed that authenticates the message that they're teaching? Say, where do you see that? Look at it again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That word confesses is present tense, meaning it's ongoing, continuous action, meaning it's a lifestyle, meaning are the lives that they live consistent with the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Who Jesus is should be evident in who they are. I watch what's happening in the world around us, and there are a lot of people who out of their mouth are saying Jesus, but out of their life they're saying the world. We must be discerning about the people that we're listening to. Be careful following spiritual leaders whose lives don't reflect the gospel they proclaim. It's one of the reasons Paul gave us 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we read all these qualifications of these pastor teachers and what their lives are supposed to look like. One of the reasons we have a stewardship team here at Hope made up of people in our fellowship is that they walk with our pastors, helping hold us accountable to lifestyles that authenticate the gospel that we're proclaiming. Woe to those preachers, so-called preachers of the gospel, who think they are above accountability. You run from those spiritual leaders who are hesitant to place themselves in a position of accountability so that people can look into their lives and examine who they are. We must test the spirits around us. Here's the second thing, and we'll be done with this. We must trust the spirit within us. 
you can hear all of this and you can begin to be afraid. Like, man, who, I don't know who to try. I don't know who to listen to. Well, John tells us we can trust the spirit within us. And that's this idea of greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let me give you a couple of statements. Here's the first one. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Here's what that means. God himself has taken up residence in you when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. John writes about this in John chapter 14. Look what he says. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. Because he abides with you and will be in you. You and I as Christians need to learn to be discerning. What does that mean? We must learn to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our daily walk. Which means time alone daily with the Father listening to the Holy Spirit is your greatest weapon against the assault of the enemy proclaiming a false gospel. Time alone, and here's what's tragic. So many Christians in America, the only time they ever read the Bible is when they're at their church on Sunday. And we wonder why we're so easily deceived. We must be much alone with the Father, discerning what it is to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit of God gives you a check in your spirit about some teaching or someone you're listening to, You need to pay attention to that. Let me tell you what I've learned in my personal experience. Every time I've walked past a check in my spirit from the Holy Spirit of God, I have lived to regret that decision. Be discerning. Here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit guides us into all the truth. The Holy Spirit guides us into the truth. That's what John said in John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit of God is to bring to our minds the truth of God's word. John in verse 6, look what he said. He said, we are from God. He who listens, he who knows God listens to us. What's he talking about there? Let me tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about John and the other apostles, himself, and those apostles who were writing for us the New Testament, which we know today as the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. John said, if somebody is not rooted and grounded in the authority of the be careful of those preachers who don't open their Bible. Listen, we don't need pop psychology. We don't need self-help resources. We need the truth of God, and the truth of God is given to us in the Word of God. Who are we to think that for some reason this infallible, inerrant Word is not relevant for today's society? May you not forget that the one who wrote it exists outside the parameters of time and sees the end of time as clearly as he sees the beginning of time. Everything we need to grow, everything we need to enjoy life, everything we need to overcome temptation, everything we need to have joyous homes, everything we need to be faithful employees is contained in the Word of God. We need the truth, and so we should measure those that we're teaching. How dare us think in our society today that our words 
are more important than His Word. Me personally, I won't put myself in a church that doesn't study the Word of God. We need to be people of the book. I'll close with this quote by MacArthur. He said, The only reliable way to test any teaching is to measure it against what God has revealed in His infallible written word as the perfect standard of truth and the sword of the Spirit. The word of God provides believers with their primary defense against error. We must know the truth. Let's pray together today. Father, this morning we ask that in the stillness of this moment you would speak. God, as only you can today. And as you sit here before the Lord, there are really two burdens that are on my heart as we pray and are about to respond by standing and singing a song of worship. And first of all, I want to talk to you that are here that are believers. You already have come to know Jesus. I want to challenge you. Who are you listening to? Who are you putting yourself under? Are they centered in the gospel? Are they teaching that Jesus is God who came as a man and who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead? Is that the consistent, central message that they proclaim? If not, be careful. If the message is all about you, something's not right. If you're a believer, I want to give you a moment just to examine your heart. Who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Who are you watching? And secondly, I want to talk to, I know we have in the room today, many who maybe you're here because somebody invited you to come. Maybe you just drove by and saw the building and came in. You're not a Christian. I want you to hear me say today that God infinitely loves you and the whole reason he came into the world is because he loved you he died he rose again because he loves you you and I could never earn our way to him but he came to us all religion says do these things and try to get to God Only Christianity says there's nothing you can do to get to Him. So He came to you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you would like to become a Christian, when we stand in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of worship. We've got some pastors that are down here at the front. You can come while we're singing. Just come to any one of these pastors and all you have to say is, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. For others of you today that are believers, you can also come during this time. Our pastors are here. We'd love to pray over you about anything in your job, your health, your family, a 
situation in your finances, we'd be honored to pray with you these steps. We're going to open them up like an old-fashioned altar. You can come and just be alone with God. As God speaks to you, you respond in this moment. Lord, have your way. Give us ears to hear what it is you want to say to us today. God, may we as believers be grounded in the truth and give us discerning ears. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.